It's good to see you out on fall break weekend. I didn't know if we'd have any youth in the house, and I'm super pumped that our youth ministries had a great week. Uh, Sock War champions, are there any Sock War champions in the room? Come on now, brag it up. That's good. I'm glad you took a bath. That's awesome. Uh, Also, our seniors had a great senior retreat and a lot of good things going on this weekend, and uh, I'm glad you're here. We just finished a sermon series on praying or talking with God at home. Today, we're going to kick off a new series called Scripture Twister. Now, there are some games that are universal from generation to generation to generation. I know this generation grew up on video games in the virtual world, but if you really want to connect with people, you got to grow up on these games. For example, remember, the classic of all classics is Monopoly, all right? Even McDonald's got in on, McNo- uh, on Monopoly, uh, grew up with that, and uh, then I would uh, reject. That's the one you get after you start with, where do you start first? You got to start with Candyland, am I right? Remember the old Candyland? Yeah, boo now, I get it now, but there was a day your parents had you hooked on Candyland. Uh, then you got Yahtzee, Yahtzee the dice game. We got to start rolling dice as little kids, started getting us all open up to adult gaming, right? Uh, that wasn't necessarily the best deal, but this is the classic of all classics, uh, the game Twister. Now, if you'd been in the first service, I know of at least five people that confessed in the first service they are having to get hip replacements because they grew up on that particular game in their generation. Now, if you don't know what Yahtzee is, you haven't experienced life, all right? uh, Twister is all about getting all twisted up and trying to see if you can flex your way to the wind. And I'm going to play off of that game into a reality that we are facing every day, maybe not in the physical realm, but in the spiritual realm, that is the issue of Scripture Twister. It's the very first game that was ever played on this planet. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve there in the garden. The very first game wasn't Yahtzee, wasn't Monopoly, uh, wasn't Solitaire. It was Scripture Twister. The enemy loves to take what God has declared, what God's Word says, and twist it to his advantage. Uh, if you don't know the Word well, you can be familiar with the word and it still get twists in your life. Uh, let me give you an example. Most of you have probably memorized John 3.16, one of the most famous verses in all of scripture. If you've memorized that, say that one with me. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have ever. You know that verse. And let me tell you, that verse will go out into eternity and there will be people who stand before God at the great white throne judgment and they will quote that verse. And they will think they're getting into heaven because they believed in God. I grew up believing in God, but I wasn't saved. That verse, if you just take it at its merit there, at first blush, you would think, well, if all i got to do is believe in God. Well, most of the world believes there is a God. Are you telling me most of the world is going to spend eternity in the presence of a holy God? The Bible says, no, it's few who are on that path. Wide is the path that leads to destruction. So how can you know John 3.16 and still not be saved? Well, you have to see the full counsel of God and know that that isn't speaking of a head intellectual ascent, a head knowledge. It is speaking of a heart knowledge. You've got to see Romans 10, 9 and 10 that says it's with the heart man believes. And so it's a different kind of knowing. But if you don't know the word and you don't know how to handle the word, you can be deceived, even in Scripture. Anybody know the second most famous verse? John 3.16, most famous. Second most famous is the shortest verse in the Bible. What is it? Say, you knew it. You got it. 
How many of you, that's the first verse you ever memorized in Awanas? That's where I would have gone, right? Give me a badge. I got Jesus wept. I got that one. What does that mean? What's the value of Jesus wept? I bet you most in this room don't know the context of where that verse comes from. Third most famous verse gets thrown around is Philippians 4.13. I can do all things who strengthens me. And we'll use that verse, all kinds of things. I have an autograph. I used to collect autographs when I was a youth pastor. And I got an autograph from Evander Holyfield, the heavyweight champion of the world at that time. And he signed everything Philippians 4.13. That was his life verse. And so what he's saying is, I can beat the snot out of you because Jesus strengthens me to pummel your face, right? That's not what 4.13 is all about. But we use that verse completely out of context. We'll come back and we'll look at some of those things. And so here's the issue. You can know scripture, but I want you to understand the enemy knows it even better than you do. You can memorize what God has said and still mishandle the word of God. Satan loves to bring us uh, into a relationship with the word, whether we question it or whether we twist it, just as long as we don't have the whole truth, so help us God. And so you go back to the garden the very first time, and we find scripture twister right there in the garden Adam has been given the word when he was created the Bible says that the father told him this I give you all of this garden all of this is yours except for that one tree and you are not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for when you eat from it you will die God gave him one command one principle have all that I've given you but stay away from evil don't invite it in that was given to Adam Eve was not even invited into the equation yet. She had not yet been uh, created. That was given to Adam. And then later, after Eve was created, Satan comes and he attacks both Adam and Eve with the truth. Listen to the first thing he said to them. He begins to get them to question what God has said. He said, did God really say? Are you kidding me? Did God really put boundaries on you? Is God really putting you in a box? Is God restricting you? I mean, look how good that tree is. Are you telling me that God is wanting you not to have fun? They began to listen to half the truth. They began to question the truth. And then in that, Satan gives them this half truth. Hey, listen, I know God said that, you claim he said, but you won't die. I mean, God's a loving God. There's no way you're going to die. When they ate from the fruit... Did they kill over dead? Hello, did they kill over dead? No. So who was telling the truth, Adam or Eve? I mean, I'm sorry, Satan or the Lord? Who was telling the truth? God was. Satan was telling a half-truth. Now, they didn't physically die in that moment, but they did experience death, spiritual death, and they would eventually experience physical death because they listened to half a truth. If we look back on that, we're going to see how Satan twisted that. But before we do, let me give you our theme verse for this series. Turn in your Bibles, go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, lest you lose at the game called Scriptural Twister. Paul's writing to Timothy. He is equipping him to be an equipper of the saints. He's called to be a shepherd. Uh, Paul's training him up and gives him this great counsel. Not just for Timothy, not just for those who are equippers of the saints, but for every saint, look at what it says. Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a worker who does not need to be 
to shame. He reminds him, Timothy, while you have this great call in your life and you have a relationship with the Lord, you also have a great responsibility. You have an accountability to the Holy One who has saved you, but the Holy One who also is living in you. Don't live a testimony that would bring shame before your holy God. Don't live a life that would be shamed. Now, what is it that could bring shame on our testimony? He says, you need to accurately handle the word of truth. There are a lot of folks that are going to be ashamed in eternity because they didn't fully handle the word of God. Those who believe there was a God and think that's what's going to save them, but never had heart knowledge, they're going to be ashamed. There are others who truly have Christ in their heart, but have allowed misunderstanding or perhaps lack of study or the inability to handle the word accurately, to misinterpret things and fall short of God's glory. The challenge here was for Timothy to be diligent. The sad thing for us today is we're not real diligent with the word, we're barely in the word. We need to be more committed to being in the Word because the Word is a lamp into our path. But if we're not turning on the light, it, it, we stumble in darkness. And he tells Timothy, be sure that you're not just in the Word, but you're diligent in how you handle the Word. That you accurately handle the Word of God. In the original language, it means don't be irresponsible with God's gift to you, what God has assigned to you. Don't be irresponsible be diligent. It also means that you accurately handle, it means to basically correctly apply what God has given. It's not enough to know what he has said. What matters is how we apply it in the way we live. That's what it means to accurately handle the truth. So if we aren't diligent and if we don't know how to handle the truth, we will fall for twisted scripture. We will fall for half-truths or we will be tempted to make it say what we want it to say, not what God said. And so let's dig in and let's figure out how to get there. Now before we get there, here's the deal. God has given us the truth and he said, the truth will set you free. Freedom is found in the truth, being the person. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. And it's also found in his revealed truth, the word of God. As I abide in Christ, as I abide in his word, I experience the truth, and the truth sets me free. Well, Satan knows that principle, and so if he knows that is the way you experience abundant life, how does he cripple that life? He gets you to not walk in a relationship with the truth, and he gets you not to be diligent in how you handle the truth, and now the truth doesn't set you free. A half-truth or a twisted truth is what sets you on the wrong course on the wrong path and takes you into a ditch. The words of the famous prophet Yoda of the universe, wisdom has been chasing you, but you have always been faster. Okay, think about it for a minute. I know you took a break here. What that phrase is saying is God has given us his wisdom. That didn't come from Yoda. Uh, God has given us wisdom. His wisdom is in his word, and that word pursues us. The Holy Spirit is to guide us into all truth. But if we're not spending time in the word, we run faster into the things of this world. We outpace wisdom, and wisdom isn't the guide to our path, and we fail. That becomes the human struggle. That becomes how we get into twisted scripture. So what we're going to do over the next weeks, we're going to take a passage that very many people are familiar with, 
but have misinterpreted or misapplied the truth. And we're going to figure out what is the truth and nothing but the truth, so help us God. Here we go. Turn to Psalm 37, verse 4. Here's our first verse. I promise you, everybody in this room has heard the application of this verse. The Bible says that God will give us the desires of our heart. Now, guys, isn't that great news when prom season's coming around and you need a date for the prom? Don't we go run into Psalm 37.4? Hey, God, I need a date. You know the desire of my heart, that pretty one over there at locker number 138? God set it up. Give me the desires of my heart. And don't make fun of prom season, guys. It may be when we're seeking a promotion at work. It could be something else that we desire on this planet. And we will run to that verse and we will pray it. And we'll pray it in great faith. God, God, I delight in you. And so, Lord, give me... Is that what this verse is talking about? Is that what, what even the psalmist is speaking of? Because you see, I'm afraid most of us have fallen for a half-truth or a twisted truth when it, when it comes to this scripture and others. Look at it again, Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, if you just read that verse, you can quickly misapply that verse. Well, let's make sure we're handling accurately verses like this and others. So let me give you a few things. If you'll take some notes, here are four things you ought to do every time you're looking at applying a verse. Now, these aren't all the tools. There are a lot of things they can teach you at seminary. There's some big old fancy words. But there are four practical things that you ought to do whenever you're studying Scripture, if you're accurately handling it. Number one, scriptural context. What is this scripture, this passage, not just this verse, but what is it saying? The scripture's before and the scripture's after. What is the whole context in scripture related to this principle? Now, it's not only just that passage, but I would also say scriptural context is, is this principle taught throughout all of scripture? What you don't want to do is find a certain verse that gets twisted over here and it contradicts what is clearly said over here. God's word does not contradict itself. So whatever you're seeing in a verse, make sure that you're seeing it clearly. That you're not uh, missing something by not doing your diligence and digging into the word. So there's scriptural context. We'll practice that in a minute. There's also historical context. You need to know the history of what's going on in that moment. When you're reading in the book of 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, you better know the historical and the cultural context. You need to know what was going on in that city. You need to know why they were dealing with tongues and other issues and the pagan worship styles that were happening within their city and all the different issues of Corinth. You need to know those things. It makes a difference in understanding what's being addressed in that moment in that particular letter. You also need to have what I call, maybe I'm making up a term, linguistic context, the languages. Now, I don't expect you to be a Hebrew scholar or a Greek scholar, but as God's word was given to us, it was given through men, inspired of the Holy Spirit, and recorded in Hebrew or technically in Greek in the New Testament, the original languages. Well, those original languages have a lot of depth in those languages that maybe we miss as we translate it into our language. There are verb tenses, there are emphases placed in certain places that make a huge difference in what is being said. You say, well, if I don't know Hebrew and Greek, how can I really know the full intent of Scripture? There are all kinds of tools. 
great things that are available now where you can use Bible study tools and Bible uh, uh, concordances and all kinds of things to go back and dig deeper than just reading a verse and thinking you get it. So use those tools. We're going to do that now with this particular verse because if we don't look at context, context is boss. If you just read a verse, it can say anything you want it to say. I can do all things through Christ. That means I don't have to study for uh, my semester exams, and I'm going to get straight A's because God is on my side. Wrong. You don't study, you ain't getting an A. I don't care how long you pray. That isn't what the verse is saying. We'll come back and look at Philippians 4 in the future. Let's look at Psalm 37. Let's take a look, and what I want us to do is apply some of those filters. Let's see what God is really saying in verse 4, because if you don't, you can easily misinterpret the verse. For some, one of the common errors is this. They assume that as long as I'm delighting in the Lord, if I, and even I've heard people teach this on TV, that if you, the reason you're not getting your prayers answered, the reason you're not getting the desires of your heart is because you're not delighting enough in the Lord. You're just not happy enough in Jesus. You just need to get happy, happy, happy in Jesus. And they put this emotional guilt trip on you as if it's about what you muster up in your emotion. The emphasis isn't on the delight of your heart, per se, and, and the emotion of the heart. It is on the issue of delight. We'll come back to that in a moment. A second error that happens here is that uh, the emphasis they place is on the desires of my heart. That that's what matters most. God, I really desire this. That's not the emphasis of the passage either. And yet, when you make those the emphases, you miss the truth, whether it's a half-truth or a twisted truth. So, let's apply some of the filters. Number one, remember context is boss. Let's go to the scriptural context. Uh, everybody knows verse 4. Do you know what verse 3 says? Probably not. Look at it. Go to verse 3. Back up a ways. Let's look at this whole full concept being taught. Verse 3. So, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Verse 3 comes before verse 4. All we want to do is jump into verse 4 and land there. We just want God to give us the desires of our heart. We don't want to look at verse 3. We don't want to talk about cultivating faithfulness in our life. We don't want to talk about doing good. We just want God to do something good for us. And we miss the passage and what God is teaching. It goes on from there. In verse 5, keep going. Let's look at the verses after verse 4. And commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will do it. So as you look at verse 3, verse 4, and verse 5, the psalmist understands God is more concerned about the holiness of our hearts than heavenly gifts dumped into our hearts. He's more concerned about what we're delighting in and what we're pursuing than us treating God like some cosmic vending machine. Delight in the Lord, commit your ways to the Lord, cultivate faithfulness, pursue these things, and then, then watch this, watch what happens. Your heart desires truly change. No longer do you desire the things of this world. When I'm committed my ways to the Lord, when I'm cultivating faithfulness, you know what I'm pursuing? I'm more concerned about his kingdom than my kingdom. I'm more concerned about spiritual and eternal things than I am temporal things, but that's where most of us land. Because all we care about is how we feel and what our hearts want. 
And that's the greatest danger on the planet. Satan played to Eve's heart, took her to that tree. She wasn't supposed to be by it. Showed her how good it looked. Her heart desired, it was desirable to the eye, and her heart wanted it. And she took it. See, this promise in Psalm 37, 4 goes both ways. He will give you the desires of your heart. Even when your desires are wrong, he'll still give those to you to show you you picked the wrong thing. So be careful about the desires of your heart. The psalmist said, I'm going to guard my ways. I'm going to watch over these things. Einstein made a brilliant observation. He said this, and I put it on the screen, evil is the real problem in the hearts and minds of men. It's not a problem of physics, but it's one of ethics. It is easier to denature plutonium than it is to denature the evil spirit of man. What was Einstein saying? Einstein was saying one of the most difficult things is to get a heart right. The heart of the issue is our hearts. Jesus spoke to that very same thing. That's why he came. He came to give us new hearts. Why do we need a new heart? Turn over to Genesis very quickly. Genesis chapter 5 or 6. Hang in there. We're almost there. Let's get the whole truth in. Genesis 6 verse 5. God had created Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve gave over to the desires of their heart to take from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now evil was resident in human hearts. Now we wake up in Genesis 6 and it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent and the thoughts of his, what? Heart. Were continually on evil. It broke the Lord's heart, the Bible says. It grieved his heart that he had even made man, because man had surrendered their hearts to evil. You say, well, that was back then. That's not me. We all have battles in the heart. We all have desires of the heart that are contrary to the heart of God. And that's been a human struggle. I can go back to story after story after story. I could go back to the Last Supper with Jesus and his disciples. They should have been graduating. It's been three, three and a half years, the equivalent of what it would take to get a seminary degree. They've spent every day with the master teacher, Jesus. And now they come to the Last Supper, and instead of being focused on worshiping God for what he had done through Passover, you know what they were doing? You know what the desires of their heart was? The desires of their heart was to figure out which one of us is the greatest disciple. They were arguing about it. Peter was leading out. James and John had already been earlier getting their mama to go to Jesus to go get them a government job. Jesus, would you let one of my boys, the Sons of Thunder, man, they would make great Vice Presidents and Defense, uh, uh, Secretary of Defense. They'd be great, right? And on your left, Peter's arguing, no, guys, I'm the greatest. Jesus needs me more than you guys. They're battling. They had the wrong heart's desires. You go throughout Scripture and you find other examples. You find David, who had a desire to be a man after God's own heart, but then there was a season he desired other things. A lady named Bathsheba. You find the prodigal son. The desire of his heart was to get away from dad's control, to get out from underneath uh, his parents' rule and authority, and to go live in the big city, and to live fast and live furious. That was the desire of his heart. God would grant that to him, and he would learn that isn't what he truly needed. Judas just desired a little bit more silver and betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces. But then we have stories of others whose hearts delighted in the Lord. That word delight that we see in Psalm 37, 
is actually a picture. If you go back, this is where you do the linguistic study. You look at the word, it literally means to have a passionate, all-in fervor. You want a picture of that? John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the forerunner to his cousin, Jesus, called of God to pave the way. He would be the one that when he would see Jesus coming as it was time to launch his earthly ministry, would declare to all present, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He was the one that was preaching out in the wilderness and what they couldn't find in the temple or in synagogues, they came out to the wilderness to hear this guy preach because they were mesmerized by this word he was preaching, preparing the way of the Lord. Day after day, John was the man in town. Everybody was talking about this great preacher, John the Baptist. And then all of a sudden, there was competition. There was another preacher that showed up in town. And this guy wasn't only a preacher, he was a miracle worker. And all the crowd started hearing about this new teacher and these new things. And they left John's camp and they went to this guy named, you probably heard of him before, his name was Jesus. John's disciples gather up with him and they said, boss, we got a problem. What's the problem, guys? Uh, if you haven't noticed, crowds are down. We're losing market share. Uh, our strategy isn't working like it used to work. We had all these huge audiences and things were going great. And, and I don't know if it's sin in your life, John. I don't know if we need a new strategic plan. Something's going wrong because we've lost market share. Now we, had we been John, had we been the boss, we said, guys, what are we going to do? We would have panicked and we would have, oh, I, maybe I just need to go to miracle working school. I need to learn to do miracles like this other guy. But John the Baptist delighted in the Lord. He didn't delight in crowds. He didn't delight in success in his ministry. He delighted in the Lord. John told his guys, he said, guys, here's the deal. He must increase and I must decrease. You know what the desire of John's heart was? It wasn't for him to get more market share and have the biggest ministry in town. His heart was that Jesus would be magnified in all the earth. What's the desire of our hearts? Do we desire more the things of this earth, the things of this lifetime? Or do we desire, like John, for Jesus to be magnified? Jesus would say later about this preacher named John. He wasn't a Baptist, by the way. They just called him the Baptist because he baptized people, all right? The Baptist wasn't even around yet. He said, this guy, John, no one greater has been born of a woman. What a testimony to a heart that delighted in the Lord and a heart that desired the things of God. So if we apply some of these things, if we look at verses 3 through 6, not just verse 4, we better understand the promise and the truth of God's word. So let's look at them again. Break out a sheet of paper. Let's write down some bullets. Here's what was taught. You want to have the desires of your heart? Check this out. Number one, first, are you trusting in the Lord? This thing that you're bringing to the Lord, does it come out of growing faith in your heart and your walk with God that you are trusting Him? Or are you just looking for God to do something cool in your life? Number two, look at the second thing it says. And we are to be doing good. In other words, we're to be serving. It talks about a kingdom mindset. It isn't about good things coming to us. It's more about the good things God wants to do through us. As I trust in Him... And as I serve him, third thing, third thing on the list, 
is that we're to cultivate faithfulness towards God. So many people run to God with Psalm 37.4 and they haven't been cultivating an ounce of faith. They haven't been trusting in the Lord. They haven't been even pursuing the Lord, but they pursue Him now because they want something. This verse is so much deeper. This prayer and this song of the psalmist is about their heart cry because they are delighting in the Lord, because their ways are committed to God, and because they want to pursue Him and nothing else. Next one. Then we delight in Him. We are all in. It is all in on His kingdom, our King of kings and our Lord of lords. Fifth thing. And if we commit our way to the Lord. If those five things are at play, if all five of those things are reality, you know what? When we start talking with God, our heart desires are totally different apart from those things. I find that my conversation with God, as we've been talking about talking with God at home, I don't talk to him about this or that or my ministry or or this or that or my, my, my. I talk about his, his, his. I talk about his kingdom. I talk about his glory. I talk about the things that are eternal. Those things become the desire of my heart. Why? Because I've been trusting in him. Why? Because he's been growing faithfulness in my heart. Why? Because I've been cultivating that and he is growing it and I'm reaping fruit in my life because I am delighting in the Lord. Too many Christians are delighting in the world and wanting God to give them stuff in this world and God ain't doing that. He loves you too much. But here's the deal. If you want it, you want it that bad, just like Eve in the garden, he'll let you have it. Just like the prodigal son who came to the father and said, I can't wait for you to die. I want it now. He gave it to him. God will give you the desires of your heart. The question is the desires of your heart. Two verses and we got to go. Let me give you some verses just to hold check. To watch the condition of your heart. Galatians 5, 16 through 25 talks about the difference between your flesh and your spirit. That if you're not delighting in the Lord, you'll delight in your flesh. If you're in the flesh, you're going to desire the wrong things. Walk in the Spirit. If you don't, your heart will greatly deceive you. So let's go to the last verse, Psalm 139, verse 23. And all God's people said, thank you, Jesus. Come on, get spiritual. Look at it, verse 23. Again, David would cry out, a man after God's own heart now, a man centered, delighting in the right things, says this, search me. O God, and know my heart. He comes before God and he opens it all up and he says, listen, I know, I know the greatest issue is not what I can get out of this world. The issue is my heart. So God, I'm asking you, break out your holy magnifying glass. Lord, stick it over my heart. Look into my heart and know my anxious thoughts, my struggles, the reality of what's going on inside and see if there be any hurtful way in me. Notice he wasn't asking for more victories, more champions, more warriors to join his army, more treasury for the kingdom, his kingdom. He wants to connect with the things that really matter, his awesome God. And he was concerned that there might be something in his heart that would keep him from receiving from heaven. See if there's any hurtful way in me, and then, Lord, then lead me. Lead me in the everlasting way, the truth, 
the path of truth, the path of life. He understood it wasn't getting things in this natural realm. It was making sure he had a heart for the eternal realm and the things that really matter. What about you? What are the desires of your heart this very moment? Because God's going to give them to you, whether they are good or whether they are bad. Let's pray about it with every head bowed and every eye closed. Scripture twister. Satan will twist this verse to make you think God owes you. That there is a God who's there when you need something, and he is. But he wants to give you greater things than just this natural realm. He wants to give you eternal things. And so today, there could be someone here, and that scripture, John 3.16, is twisted. It's half a truth in your life. Oh, you know John 3.16, you even believe that you're probably going to heaven because you believe there's a God, just like I did for the first 17 years of my life. I remember going to church with Cammie and the preacher asking, how many of you know for certain you go to heaven? I wasn't sure, I didn't think I was, but I was hoping I was, and I was thinking, surely I'm going because I believe there is a God. And I was lost. I was heading for hell. Because I only believed in my head, and I'd never surrendered my heart. There it is again, the heart. Not the blood-pumping organ, we're talking about your spirit man. That which is dead... Coming alive, being born again, giving your heart to Jesus. If you've never done that today, come to one of our staff and say, man, today I need to experience John 3.16. I need to be saved. Maybe some of you, you know Jesus in your heart. You've got John 3.16 down, but you've been missing Psalm 37.4. You're not delighting in the Lord. Ask God to change your heart, just like the psalmist did. Change my heart, God. And then, if you're delighting in the Lord, if you're committed to the ways of the Lord, if you've been cultivating faithfulness, if you've been doing good, allowing God to work in your life, share the desire of your heart with God this morning. Ask God to move in supernatural, eternal, and special ways. But if your heart's not there, get that right. You might need to come to the altar and pray. You might want to pray with somebody, one of our prayer warriors up front. You might want to pray with somebody you're sitting with. Let's get our hearts right. Father, in Jesus' name, be the Lord of our hearts. Be the Lord of these moments. Be the Lord of our commitments. God, may we delight in you and nothing else. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.